Denver's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, 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 my friend, to the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Brad Wilson. And today's guest on the show is Cash Game Beast, YouTube vlogger, and along with his wife, Jody, host of the Raising the Nuts podcast, Trevor Savage. I can't overstate to you how great of a dude Trevor is. He's one of those guests who I didn't know too much about heading into our conversation, and yet when we shut it down, it felt like we had become fast friends. Our time together was so enjoyable, in fact, that this will be one of them their two-parter type CPG episodes. Because your favorite podcast host simply couldn't rein in his curiosity about Trevor's poker journey. In today's part one, you're going to learn why 2013 laid the foundation for Trevor's current projects. All about the incredible Play Every Hand challenge Trevor is documenting on his YouTube channel. How Trevor continually learns and grows from the elite players he battles against on the green felt. And much, much more. And before you dive into Trevor and I's conversation, I want to let you know that today's episode is brought to you by Poker with Presence. If you want to get in the zone and play your best when you need it the most, visit PokerWithPresence.com. And now, without any further ado, I bring to you the beast from the East, Trevor Savage. Trevor, good afternoon, my man. How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing very, very well. Welcome to the show. Uh, I want to start out this episode by asking you, what's something interesting about yourself that not many people know? interesting about myself that not many people know hmm. it's it's funny because a lot of people know the the father and the poker player type thing about me i think it's i think maybe the origins of my relationship with my wife and how quickly we went into being what we were uh, how, so, how quickly tell, yeah, tell so me we, yeah we we have a pretty unique uh story where we became friends first for a little bit and then didn't talk for a while uh, we were friends actually because I encouraged her to date my friend. So <laughs> it was it was actually a weird uh, start to our relationship. Um, and then we didn't see each other for a while. And then wait, 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 wait. How did you how did you know her well enough to get her to date your friend? Like, how did that happen? It was actually the first time I ever met her. I, I encouraged her to date my one of my friends. They dated for eight months. It didn't work out. But I was always nice to her. So we had a good relationship, a good friendship. And then we, we didn't see each other for a couple of years. Um, and then we started talking once again and we, then we spent every day together after she had broke up with a, a different boyfriend and, uh, the first, the next eight months or so we spent every day together, but we weren't officially a couple. So we were never actually dating. And then I just proposed to her. So what does it mean not being officially a couple? Like what, what, what does that mean? It was complicated. It was, it was one of those things where she had been in a lot of relationships and she kind of bounced from one relation to the next and she didn't want to sabotage our relationship. So she didn't want to officially say we were going to be dating because she had just broken up with another boyfriend. 
And so I was kind of in the opposite realm where I had never really had a girlfriend. Um, you know, I girls that I'd seen, but nothing, any, anything serious. And once she broke up with that boyfriend, I was like, we're going to be together forever. This is going to be me and you. And she was like, hold on a second. This is not exactly what I'm envisioning. She said that with her words, but with her actions, we were together 24 seven. And so it came to the point where I just said, no, I'm just going to propose to her. And I proposed to her and she said, yes. Uh, And I actually did it in front of her entire family, some of whom didn't even know I existed in the world. Uh, So it was kind of interesting. But uh, from there, from that day, when we first started fake dating, we'd been together pretty much nonstop. And it's actually funny. We're actually not together right now. She's, she's away for the next week. So I'm actually a solo parenting for this next week. We are very rarely apart from each other. Um, And that's, that was, uh, see, 13 years ago. And we've been married for 11 years now. And how'd you know? What was it about her that you just said, I'm going to spend the rest of my life with this, this soul? That's a, that's a really good question. I don't know. I was just, it just felt like it was meant to be. It felt like we were incredible together. Uh, I think part of it maybe is like that having to fight for it type mentality where, you know, we were together, but not together for that stretch and where I was so uncertain whether it was actually going to work out. And there was no animosity between us or anything like that. It was just one of those things where she didn't want to immediately commit to something. And in my mind, it was like we were together for real, you know? And so I think not taking that for granted and, and just knowing that, you know, I needed to really work for it in a sense uh, made it feel very special. And, you know, it's just, it's hard to describe, uh, the relationship. It's just one of those things where you get each other so deeply and you're so on, you know, in the same, on the same page in so many important areas. Uh, and it's just, we, we have a really unique relationship where we just are very different people personality wise, but it just meshes really well. And it, and it ends up in that we just don't really fight at all, which is very, uncommon for most relationships i think part part of that is that i'm i'm not very confrontational but she is very confrontational and in when it comes to certain things and so it just ends up working out and she's definitely softened up more over the years and it's kind of just worked out in that way it's uh yeah that's that that's a great story man that's an awesome story and it's like you you know you're facing a big riverbed on the river and maybe the data points don't add up but you just get a feeling you have this, your intuition takes control. And you're like, I just got a fucking feeling that this guy is blasting off like a rocket. Um, and you can't really pinpoint why. And the same thing with your, you know, your wife, you just had a feeling that this is the one. That is so perfect, actually, that you equate it in that way, because I'm, I'm a hundred percent a feel player. So there it, was a feel, it was a, it was a feel play, you know, decision where, you know, if, it's funny because if you had put that situation, if, if somebody came to a relationship expert and said, these are the things that are going on, what direction should I go? The relationship expert might say like, you should run, you should not do this, you, you know, and stuff like that. Where I was just, I was just like, it's going to work out. I'm going to be fine. I'm just going to propose to her. It's going to be all good and you know, be happily ever after. And that's kind of how things have gone for me for uh, a lot of my uh, life. And, you know, I, I feel very fortunate in that sense, obviously, but, uh, you know, sometimes you just got to go with your gut. Yeah, a friend of mine told me, I interviewed him for this podcast, and I just told this story, so the listener is like, ugh, you're telling it again. But I haven't told it to you, so I'm going to tell it to you. His name's Adam Creek, and we were talking about analytical and intuitive players. And he's an Olympic gold medalist, knows nothing about poker. And 
straight away, he hit the nail on the head and thought came, came at it from an angle that I hadn't even considered. And he talked about the Myers-Briggs test and how some people are just super intuitive by nature. That's just how they're constructed. And other people are super analytical, almost like, you know, on the autism spectrum of just ultra analytical people. And like when the, when you get into an argument online or you're trying to convince somebody that something is good, the analytical person is going to beat the living shit out of the intuitive person a hundred percent of the time, because they, they can say exactly why. And the intuitive is like, well, I just kind of felt I had a good feeling. And, and like, that doesn't work very well in like online arguments, but it doesn't discount the fact that like, most of the crushers that I've experienced are intuitive players. They have a read, they go with their read. And I, I genuinely believe that a lot of times, if we were to break down that data, if we were to go super deep and make all the extrapolations that they're making, they're effectively just node locking perfectly and then making great decisions in the decision tree. So like, you know, there is a method to this like intuitive feel player and it, it it, it drives me a little bit nuts that they get a bad rap, but like, I get it because they just can't win an argument online. Like you can't, it's hard to win an argument when you're talking about, you know, your feelings versus like hard data. Right. It, it makes a lot of sense. And actually it makes me think of a pretty big point in my poker career where I made sure that I, I kind of made a conscious effort to trust that intuition. You know, I, it was always ta uh, tagging or tugging at me. Uh, you know, where I would be really analytical with things and I would say, okay, I need to do this on this river and, and I need to call because of this. But then my gut was saying, you know, you don't need to call in this spot. You can just fold. And it wasn't when I, when I started to just always listen to that, I had a pretty big uh, increase in, in my performance. I thought. Yeah. Like there's a lot to analytics, right? Like there's a lot you can learn and a lot you can discern and you can grow as a poker player, but like, it's the same for me facing a spot on the river. I know that I need to bluff some percentage of the time. I know that I have the right combination to bluff with. And I'm just sitting there and I know this dude is not folding. And like the analytical side of me says, you need to have bluffs here. This is the perfect combination to bluff with. The intuitive side is saying, don't do it. What are you doing? Don't do this. Don't put, you don't need to have bluffs here. And then like, I put the bluff in and it gets snapped. And then like, I'm walking away from the table, like scratching my head, like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, I'm trying to be balanced so I can sleep well at night. Like this doesn't, this is not, this is so such a silly way to go about playing cards. Like my strength is my intuition and following that. Don't try to be something that you aren't and just trust the, the trust that you know, this dude's not, never folding. So like, we don't need to have bluffs here. Just always have value. And like, it, it's done more harm than good for me as well in my poker career just like some head scratching walking away from the tables like why did i do that like you know like that glazed look you get um on the flip side of that there's probably some confirmation bias to it that especially with people who are more intuitive in that when you don't pull the trigger and you're like yep you would have got called you're more likely to and if you do pull the trigger and you don't get called you're just like oh yeah okay that worked that time but yeah, and on, on the on the flip side, for the more analytical people, they they can't tap into that intuition to even get to that point. So it's just like, okay, I'm going to robotically go through this, and and no matter what, I think for from a poker player perspective, it just comes back to confidence. So if you have confidence in your your intuition, 
And you're going to just make better plays on the river if you're trusting in your intuition. Whereas if you have more confidence in the analytical side of things and in understanding ranges and things like that, then that's going to give you the confidence. That's one thing I've always come back to is like, I, even though I'm a field player, like I've definitely tried to learn as much GTO type stuff as possible, because if I don't have strong intuition for something, then when I do get to a river spot, I can say to myself, okay, I should call here. Or I shouldn't call here. And then I can be done with the decision. You know, I have the confidence in myself to make that decision. And then once it's done, it's done. And you, you're not sweating the decision afterwards. Yeah. That that's the whole point, right? And to not sweat the decision, to just do it and then be happy with it and be done with it and move on with your life. Um, right. So let's dive into your story, man. Sure. Tell me the story of how you got started playing cards. Uh, kind of typical story for the people from the Moneymaker boom. I uh, was in college at Rutgers University in New Jersey. A friend of mine happened to find poker on ESPN right the year before Moneymaker. It was uh, the winter before Moneymaker. And he taught us how to play the game. We, we spent the next four or five months playing, and then Moneymaker happened. How old were you? I was, uh, let's see, so that was 2002, so I was 19. 19. Yeah, so I was 19 at the time. We, we were just playing, you know, the home games in the, in the dorm rooms and then eventually in our house that we moved into, and then I became obsessed. I, uh, obsessed. I have an obsessive personality, so it was, it was over for the rest of the guys who were playing because I was just going to win every time. It, you know, I was going to try to win. So I started playing online a little bit, and then I started driving down to Atlantic City about an hour and a half drive from New Brunswick. I wasn't 21 yet, but they didn't check IDs then. So no big deal. Just go into the casino and play. And like I said, became obsessed with it. So I started going down every weekend. I had a job where I could make my own hours. So I would, and the classes at Rutgers were so big. I picked a major political science where you didn't have to go to class. So I would uh, set up my schedule so that I would work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then I'd go down to Atlantic city Thursday to Sunday. And I'd just play one, two at the Tropicana straight through. If I could, if I, I wanted to sometimes I go up to the hotel room you know and uh did that for the two years that I was in college and when I graduated I decided I did not want to get like a real job I was doing well in poker so I was fortunate that my aunt uh lived in New York City she was she's uh eight or nine years older than me very successful lives in New York City and had a apartment down down the shore right next to Atlantic City in Margate New Jersey uh, that she was never at so she let me stay there for free. Wow. Uh, so I had a place to move into. I had $3,000 bankroll to my name. Uh, and I've just moved down there with that and, and kept playing at the Tropicana for, uh, I was playing at the Tropicana occasionally at the Borgata. Mostly it would, you know, I'd move up to one, two, two, from one, two to two, five and five, 10, uh, you know, not any kind of bankroll management basically just was trying to make enough money to, to pay for beer and going out and stuff like that. I didn't have any bills, no, no worries. And then my, uh, my poker career took a, a big shift. And it's funny, I was listening to the Galfon interview and it made me think about how different my poker journey has been from pretty much everyone else's because I was kind of along that path of where I was just able to play as much as I wanted to and I could just make money and, and keep re- replenishing my bankroll or spending it on whatever I wanted. And then when my wife and I, my now wife and I started dating, uh, it all kind of switched up because like I said, things happen quickly we got engaged after eight months and then she got pregnant three months after that. And at the time we, I was 24 years old. What's your wife's name, by the way, Jody. All right. Just so the yeah. listener knows you can, you can, you can call her Jody now instead of my okay, wife. Cool. <laughs> yeah. So Jody got pregnant when we were, you know, 24 years old 
And I'd been playing poker at that at that time for a living for three years. So that was in 2000, uh, the beginning of 2008, she got pregnant. So I've been playing. So you're going from, where were you living at the time? Were you still living in that apartment of your aunt's when you got married? And then no, we, we had gotten our own apartment um, in Brigantine, another town next to Atlantic City. And we were living there. When she got pregnant, we ended up moving back towards our hometown, which is about 45 minutes from there uh, and getting an apartment there. Uh, so at that time, I transitioned from... I was playing live for all those years. I was playing online intermittently, but not nothing consistent. Um, but I had made a lot of friends online uh, through actually through Dan Negreanu's for poker for me, his full contact poker. So I was a, a poster on there for a while, and I actually a lot of the friends I made on there uh, were really good players. And one of them I made was uh, Tom Marchese, and so he at the time he was you know three or four years younger than me, um, but we were playing the same games and we were chatting every day uh, when we were playing online. And he convinced me to switch to playing online, like give up playing live, focus completely on, on online. And he, he actually staked me for a little bit, uh, first playing six max and then playing heads up, uh, heads up, no limit cash. And that was, so this was in 2008, right when we found out that she was pregnant. This is when I kind of, everything shifted for me because it was, it went from, I'm just this kind of single guy doing whatever I want to. Okay, now I really need to make, poker a job it's 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 not just shit you know, got real <laughs> right shit got real it's not like oh it's cool to be a poker player like i'm a you know i'm i make fifty thousand dollars a year and be cool like no it's like i need to provide for a family um jody had graduated from drexel with a degree in information technology um but at the time when when she was pregnant about seven months pregnant she got laid off from her job so then it got even more real uh 2007 was my year where i while, while I was with her, um, while we were dating, that I was still, I, I did well that year playing online. Um, but 2008 was the year where I really turned a corner because it, it became the, the point where I have this thing playing heads up cash games where I can do really well and I need to do well because I'm going to be supporting a family. You know, she, she got laid off from her job. And at the time, I uh, when she did get laid off, I was doing really well. So we just said, okay you stay home, you can stay home with the baby and we'll just do our thing like that. Um, So playing heads up cash games was amazing. That was, it made me a much better player for sure. Obviously Um, a lot of times it was just a kind of a bum hunting type thing, but it wasn't in the sense that I wouldn't play anybody tough. It's just that nobody tough would sit against you. Like this is just the way the the player pools were set up. Right. Right. Yeah. It's like a, when I was playing in the six max streets on a daily basis back then, um, chronically starting tables and it's like reverse bum hunting. It basically like I sit there and I'm like bug spray for all the regs. Nobody's going to sit against me. What they want to do is they want to wait to see who sits against me. And then they want to pop in, um, when they get a good spot. But like typically what would happen is like, two or three fish would sit down and all of a sudden I'm at a great table and yeah. like they would miss their seat. So it's yeah. like, yeah, like I'm making the tables to attract the fish, but also the regs were just scared of sitting against me. So like, you know, kind of a win-win. Yep, exactly. Uh, so that went well. I had routinely had uh, one of the highest win rates at, on full tilt specifically at one, two and two, four heads up, no limit. And I didn't really play too much higher than that. I occasionally play three, six and five, ten. But it was mostly that 
the way my career was going is I was making money and I knew that I had to spend it on, on all these new expenses. You know, I had the baby coming. I knew that I was going to, we were going to be buying a house soon, getting married. Uh, so we got married in the year after, uh, what year did we get married? Hold on. Let me think 2009. So, uh, Ava, our first daughter was born in 2008, September of 2008. And then we got married the following, uh, following year in 2009. So I, it was getting to the point you know, in my life where, all that money that I was making and I was doing well was going to be going to this family stuff. Whereas a lot of the people, for instance, Tom Marchese was in the same shoes as me, except for he would just do what, what Phil Galfine was saying, where you know, you take shots at the next level with 12 buy-ins. And if it goes well, it's great. If it doesn't and you lose half of it, then you just go back. There was no option that for me. It was, I had to win. Right. Um, What's that pressure like having to win, knowing that you're the sole breadwinner of the family? It, it's something that I always looked at as a positive for me because it always, for, I, I, I say I always looked at it that way. And that's not true because for a while it took, I had to shift my mindset because for a while I thought to myself, man, I wish I would have done it this way. And that's, and that's such poor thinking at the time, but, and I can look at that in retrospect and see how silly that is, but it always pushed me to make sure that I was always playing my best. Like I just, became uh, really good at mental game stuff because I knew that I could not make these mistakes and just like tilt away a bunch of buy-ins because these people were relying on me and I just was not going to go broke. I was not going to, and I had always had support from my family. Um, but there is something obviously from, uh, you know, and, and Jody's family too, they were kind of hesitant at first just because they didn't understand, you know, they don't understand poker. And it's like, this guy's a gambler, like he's, you know, whatever. So it's always kind of the, you have that in the back of your mind. Like, I don't want to let them down either. Um, sorry about that noise. No, no, that's okay. I, had um, to, I put my phone in airplane mode too, because I got a little beep. That was my computer going off. I'm sorry. I lost you here. There you go. All right. There you go. Sorry. Um, so yeah, I had to, I really wanted to make sure that I was going to not let anybody down in doing this. So the, the pressure certainly can be tough at times, especially as, you know, expenses mount and then you just have more kids and then it keeps going and going but it has always encouraged me to really do my best essentially and this is you know this is a path that i i took as well and i'm fairly cagey about my my life uh up until like the mid 2000s um because you know i i played worse than you i i did a thing where i got uh married young to someone that I, I didn't mesh well with because I thought that that was like a thing that you're supposed to do. And then also in my career too, had two young children. And so I also played two, four, three, six, sometimes five, 10, but most of volume is at two, four and three, six, because it's the same. You have this pressure to provide. And, you know, I had no support from any direction, not family, uh, not her family, not her. And it was like, this is on me to show up and perform every single day. And it's like, you're working with this like 30K bankroll with like 8K in monthly expenses. And you're like, holy fuck, I need like to 33% this thing every month just to keep my head above water, just to like not go broke. You know what I mean? And like, for me, that pressure was, you know, it's intense. It's motivating. You know, you you have no choice. You have no choice but to show up and do everything you can. But like in my case, for sure, I wish 
I would play way differently, I think, uh, going back to give myself a good, uh, better opportunity to really scale the stakes. Because what you got to do is you have to break a threshold to where you can comfortably play like 510 and 1020 so that you can make more money than your outgoing expenses, like a lot more so that like, yeah, money's going out, but you have just way more coming in. And that's really what allows your bankroll to blossom and grow. And then you can take shots and like it. But uh, when you make decisions in life, sometimes they can, uh, they affect your trajectory as a poker professional. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's funny because I've just always played at these. I mean, I played higher stakes and stuff like that, but I've always played at these levels for the longest time, but I've always enjoyed it too, because the at least the stress of the swings is so much less and i've also been fortunate in the games that i've found as well in that it's just i've been really lucky with the opportunities that i've had in in the player pools that i've had to play in that i just don't have to worry about losing and that so even though i've operated in that sense of of having a, a smaller bankroll with high expenses it's worked out because of the, the luck that I've had essentially in, in the player pools that I found. Yeah. You're being f- very modest here. And I want to, <laughs> I want to break through this modesty, um, not worrying about losing. Right. It's pretty clear to me that like, there's a special breed of human that can go through what you went through and go through what I went through and not crack and make it out the other side. And I, that speaks volumes as to, you know, the type of inner strength, mental strength that you have and your ability as a poker player. So I want to ask you, like, what was it about poker that appealed to you that you decided this is what I want to spend my life doing? And why do you think you are able to get good at this game? I think I was destined to have a unconventional job. My, my dad was in a rock band growing up and my mom is a tarot card reader. So kind of, you have that set in, in in front of you where it's like, you're probably not going to end up in a nine to five job. So I, I did always want to do something that was unique. And I, I have always enjoyed games and strategy and things like that. I'm a hyper competitive person. So I think when I found poker, that's kind of what, what grabbed me is, you know, you can just, it's a competitive game. That's just fun to play. That you can win money and you get to gamble as well. Like I, you know, I've always liked to gamble. So uh, even though like I would not, I would not deter, I would not like call my career gambling very much because it, it hasn't been that way, but there's obviously elements of it uh, in, in the game. Yeah. There's elements mm-hmm. of risk all in the world right. every single day with every single career. I mean, lots of folks in the year 2020 are finding out this element of risk with a career that just goes defunct because of COVID, right? Like we're all taking a risk in one way or the other. It just, some occupations just seem riskier than others. Um, so like, you know, you had a good inner circle. How hard were you working on your craft back then? And like, what were you using to learn and grow as a poker player? I always learned them. So I definitely had a great inner circle. So surrounding myself with, with great friends who were very smart with poker has been key throughout my career for sure. I've had different groups throughout the years that I've always been able to bounce things off of. And then, you know, I help them, they help me, that type of thing has always been great. But I've always learned the most from poker by just playing, by playing and then watching 
other people who I think are good players in my games and thinking about later on why they're doing what they're doing. So that's my number one thing. So anytime I started in a new player pool, I would just identify who are, who do I think are the elite elite players? And I just study them nonstop. And if they do something different in a, in a hand that they don't normally do, I would just spend the entire day thinking about why they were doing what they were doing. So I was never somebody who watched a ton of training videos or did a lot of stuff like that. I was more, these guys are watching training videos. Now I'm going to pick from what they're doing and see what works for me. And then again, just like coming back to that intuition and trusting that I'm, I've played so many hands that I'm going to just trust my gut and just do what I think is right. And that was the same thing, you know, uh, picking up on the poker story a little bit after um, Black Friday happened, I went back to playing live poker. Obviously we, we couldn't play online anymore. So I went to Parks Casino, had just opened up about 45 minutes from me. And so again, like this is where I was talking about the opportunities that I were, was presented with. You know, obviously I had online poker. I had live poker for a while and then online poker uh, in, you know, kind of the boom time period to have it, especially with the heads up cash games. And then right kind of as that was starting to dry up a little bit, Black Friday happened. So I wasn't even that upset about it because things were slowing down so much. Um, and then six months before Black Friday, Parks Casino had just opened up with a new poker room. So brand new market that was untapped in this area. And it was 45 minutes from my house. So I went over there and started playing live games again, playing 10, 10, no limit every day. We started the game uh, 9.30 in the morning and I would play till five or six in the afternoon, Monday to Friday. And we, we started the game every day. And I would do things there that I just, there was a couple other online guys that came in uh, and I became fr- very good friends with them, but I did things so differently than they did from, from a, from a gameplay standpoint where they were just like, what, why would you do that? That, that doesn't make any sense. And I would, you know, have uh, bluffs in different spots where they would just think that you should never do that. And then, you know, have value and always have like value and just go all in when, you know, you're just getting called like the kind of the old live pro tricks that the guys who were coming from online just had no idea, like you just think it was terrible. Um, so kind of just having that trust and, and, and learning on the fly, you know, from everybody also. And I said, you know, I, I would pay attention to the elite players, but I also pay attention to the fish and the bad players and the guys who are breaking even, like, what are they doing that I can pick up on? You know, there's so, so, so many players that are considered bad players that you can get a ton from because you see how other people react to what they do. And then you're like, this is amazing. I can do this. And, and people are going to just lose their minds. Yeah. That Melissa Burr said a, a very similar thing in that like sometimes somebody comes in and they're just punting and being ultra aggressive, but they do something that is like just kind of crazy and unorthodox and it works. And she's like, Whoa, that was cool. Like, and then it's like a thing that is, it's a new tool that yep. you, you can put in your toolbox and, you know, Pareto principling it out. 80% of your profit at the poker table comes from 20% of the players you play against. And those are not the regs. Uh, spoiler alert. These are the recreational players, the fishes. And like, I, I learned a long time ago that when you're playing live poker, it doesn't matter if the cocktail waitress knows that you have the nuts here a hundred percent of the time. And the rest of the world knows as long as that one dude that you're in the pot against on the river, as long as they don't know you're good. Like, you, you know, uh, I, I'll never forget playing against Vanessa Selps. Um, I was uh, friends with her when we were around 21 years old. We met 
playing cards against each other on party poker of all things and like AOL instant messenger. But like we were playing against each other and she just made the comment, like, I always know what you have, like when we're not playing against each other. And then when we're playing against each other, I never know what you have. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> that's the point, right? <laughs> like that's the game that we're playing. Like, I don't right. give a shit if everybody knows, but my opponent doesn't. And like some people, like when you look at the threshold for value, they just don't have one. Like they just don't care. So you just totally maximize it as an exploit. And that's the most profitable thing that you can do against those guys. Agreed. Uh, another, another big shift for me mentally, at least happened when I went to parks and I had made the decision just prior to going to parks that I wasn't going to care what anybody thought anymore. And I, I wasn't somebody who outwardly like showed that, but I know that internally I was always thinking like, Oh, if I make this player, if people are going to think what I, you know, what are they going to say about me? Do they think I'm a good player caring about all that stuff? Like, you know, I was very proud of like how I was a heads up cash game player before that and the win rates that I would achieve and things like that. And I just said, when I went to parks to play, I was just not going to talk to anybody about win rate. I wasn't going to talk about, and it was kind of right before the 2k thread that DGAF had on, on two plus two. So it kind of meshed well with that when I read it. Um, but it was, it was a big change for me mentally to just have that confidence in myself to not care what anybody thought. And then that then projected into how I would play at the table because I wasn't afraid to look like an idiot. I wasn't afraid to just go with my gut and fold, you know, a huge hand if I thought there was no reason that I should call. Yep. Um, so, and that has, that has kind of extended further on to making YouTube videos, which we'll get to, I, I assume eventually, but I can just make YouTube videos and have complete confidence in my abilities and my results over a long period of time that I don't care what anybody thinks. Like when I show a hand that I play, because I know, I know what I'm doing. You know what I mean? And right. you need to, you need to have that confidence when you're in content in poker content, because people are show, seeing your hands. They're always going to have some sort of comment. They're always going to, you know, say that you're not a winning player or whatever that stuff. And if you don't, if you let that bother you in content, you're, you're screwed. You, you certainly are. I'll never forget. I played a hand on card runners. It was like a one K no limit training video I was making for them. And Actually, I had a student of mine who was sweating me while I was making the video. And I had Jack High on the river. And like this fish bets like 700. And I'm like verbalizing my narration and my thought process. And I'm like, I think the board was like, uh, it, it was like seven, eight. So I had like the nut gut shot. And I was like, man, I don't fucking believe this guy. Like, I'm just like, whatever. I have Jack High. I don't care. So like I call and it turns out he like turned deuces into a bluff um <laughs> so he beat me with deuces in like this big pot where i called the river with jack high and like i looked at and i had this thought like do i want to put this out there like is this a thing i want to release publicly because like i just called 800 bucks on the river with jack high like i'm going to look like an idiot and then i just realized like i don't give a shit like i don't care what people think about me like i thought this was the right decision i'm going to put it out there and yeah people commented and said that was the worst call that I've ever seen in my entire life. And you know what? I don't care. Like, I think that it's interesting to me. Well, okay. I'm not going to say interesting. That's like my soft way of saying that I think it's idiotic. It's idiotic to me right. how people can comment on somebody that's made their living playing this game for like 15 years and be like, you are a fish. What are you doing? Like you played that horribly. Like, who are you? Shouldn't you be looking at this person 
and like trying to figure out what it is they were they're doing you know like you're looking at the regs in the games that you're playing and like asking yourself what are they doing why did they deviate from you know what's normal here and take this line like that curiosity is such a large part of what creates a winning poker player and when you just think that you have it all figured out and you're not curious like you're just done so like in my opinion those guys that say these things they just they're not on a path that is going to lead them to success in this field period you know um so yeah i i don't really pay it too much mind and i i think i'm just i'm over it too like whatever i'm you know what i'm gonna do things that i'm ashamed of i guarantee that i, I guarantee every session i play i'm gonna do something that i'm like Ooh, i don't like that but that's poker like that's life why hide from it you know we're we're all fallible even on the opposite end of things, there's there's been so many people over the years that are regulars that I play with, and they're just like, they, you know, they'll they'll say that I'm tight or that I never bluff in these spots, and I'm never, and then they still call, yeah. <laughs> or you know, or they're they're just like, you know, you just get to make all the money, and all you do is just play good hands, and and like, okay, that's fine, that like, you know, I mean, that's if you think that that's cool. I mean, if you don't think that, that's great. But I think one thing that I've always had is that people have very different viewpoints of my game playing with me. So some people think again, like, you know, I'm the, the tightest guy in the world and I, I just only play really good hands, which is certainly true in many situations. You know, you got to play good hand. If you play good hands, you're going to win the money. Like that's just how poker works. Um, you know, obviously, especially when you're playing, if you're playing live, you know, nine handed live, you just have to play good hands unless there's multiple blinds and anything, all that stuff out there. But even still in like, you know, in six max games online, uh, in the limit games, you're going to have to play strong ranges. Like it's just the way the game works. It's built into the game. If it was a different game, if you're playing in a different game with me, where we're playing with you know three blinds and ante, then there's probably I'm probably I'm going to play some more hands, you know. Uh, and then on the other side of things, obviously you have the other people who are like, this guy plays every single hand because I do play every single hand in some games. So it's it's uh it's just funny to see the different perspectives that people have. And uh, you mentioned the three blinds and antes, which I assume is not an accident. So I assume you, you've battled some on these uh, shady little apps, the three I, blind and anti games. I actually have not. Really? Um, yeah. I got to say, those games are fucking awesome. Like three blinds and an anti is so much more fun than just two regular two blind poker. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure they are. And I would I would like to get into them for sure. But I, I'm fortunate that I get to play. I live in New Jersey, so I play on the regulated sites. And I don't have to deal with any uh, shady, shady operations. That's another like massive, just built-in advantage that you've got. Just living right there near all the casinos, having regulated poker. Yeah. Like, while yeah. the rest of the country is just like trying to struggle and like, what do I do? What? Do, where do I play? Where do I get action? Right. So massive opportunity again. So I played at parks every day for two and a half years, and I actually at one point was considering moving to Canada just because I went, I missed online. I actually went up to Ottawa with two friends, spent one day up there looking at apartments, applied for it. Luckily, we didn't get it because the next week, the New Jersey bill went through for online poker. So I played, like I said, played at parks for two and a half years. And then November of 2013, uh, New Jersey legalizes online poker. And it's it's like, okay, this is a brand, another brand new market for me. Just as, you know, when you play in the same room in the same game where there's not a huge player pool, and they, we, they loved us. Like we had a great time at parks. We had 
amazing regulars, amazing guys who played during the day. And we just had a great time, but obviously things are going to start to dry up a little bit. And it was like right at that time when New Jersey online comes like, okay, back to online poker. I get to come back home. At that point we were uh, close to having our third child as well. So we had two kids at the time and, and now they were going to be going into school and stuff like that. So it's like, great. Okay. Come home, work, work from home and, and have that flexibility back again, from that not having to go to the casino each day. And, you know, in a, in a brand new market with regulated online poker, I mean, can you get any better than that? So that's what it's been for the past seven years now, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. Running good, running good in life. Um, <laughs> Pure run. For, yep. John, I wanted to ask you why you decided to invest in a preflop bootcamp. Everything that you had done with me to that point, or I had heard you do, had impressed me. I loved the podcast. I accidentally ended up in the poker power hour and loved that. And then I took coaching and then you recommended the boot camp. And at first I didn't think it was, you know, something that would be that valuable. But I was like, everything else has been amazing. So I signed up and then it just blew me away. And what about bootcamp blew you away? Like it started off slow. Like I'm learning these ranges and I'm not even understanding what you're talking about. And then all of a sudden, as I start to understand what we're doing with the three bets, the four bets, all of a sudden it just kind of hit me. And I was like, oh my God, how do I not know this stuff? This is amazing. The more I studied them, I started to understand why they were constructed sometimes. Like I'd be like, that's why that's like that. And that would lead to more revelations and just a better understanding of poker in general. Do you have any interesting takeaways from your boot camp experience? The most interesting thing about the boot camp, it's a pre-flop boot camp, but I feel like it's done as much for my post game as it did for my pre-game just because I'm not in as many awkward and bad situations as I found myself in. You know, when we were doing coaching before the boot camp, we couldn't get through 10, 15 minutes of tape without finding mistake after mistake. And then once we did the boot camp, it solved problems on the back end as well. I know you've studied for a thousand hours this year. How do you think boot camp compares to your other poker study? Oh, it's crazy. The boot camp is probably the most important thing I've done all year out of everything. I would give anything to go back and to, to know that stuff 10 years ago. I can't imagine how successful I'd be right now if I had known that stuff. And I thought the boot camp was so valuable that I literally insisted you take more money from me and paid you more for the boot camp because I was blown away. I just thought the price was too cheap. And it's changed my game in ways that I, I can't even explain to you. If you'd like to join the next round of Preflop Bootcamp, which starts on the last Saturday of every month, head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp to lock up your spot. One more time, that's ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp. I have a kind of an odd question. Have, have you ever, you know, you're mentioning how different people describe your game differently because of just the different experiences they have with you. Like, have you ever been told a story about something that you've done that is just like completely fabricated that like, you know, you never played a hand in such a way? 
there there was the only time I can think of this was that there was a card player article that was published from a, a tournament that I was playing in. It was this it was maybe like a fifteen hundred dollar WCP circuit event. And I can't remember who the author was. And I, I have the name in my head, but I don't know if it's right. So I don't want to say it's the wrong person. Sure. But uh it was a hand that they played where and they were illustrating a bunch of points about about you know how you shouldn't raise small pre-flop. And so this is from like 2000, I want to say it's like 2012. They're illustrating a bunch of points, how you shouldn't raise small pre-flop. You shouldn't bet so small on the flop in these spots. And they had all the sizings wrong, all the positions wrong. And I have a, so my poker memory is ridiculous. That's been probably my strongest poker ability is that I've played over 12 million hands in my life. And I could probably tell you every single one of them like this. And so I actually remember this exact hand. I had pocket Queens. And I, I opened to 1K at 200, 400 with 5K stack. So not even, not even that small of an open. And the guy defended with 7-4 offsuit. And so he's, he was illustrating that I raised too small because he said I min-raised. Um, and then uh, he had flopped two pair. And, uh, you know, I bet, bet called flop, obviously, because we have 10 big blinds. And so he wrote a whole article about this whole thing and got all the sizings wrong, the positions wrong. He said I opened in late position. Like, you know, so it's just like, that's the type of thing that I, like, you, if you're going to pick anybody out in the poker world to make a hand up about it, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be me. Yeah. Don't be Trevor. Um, yeah. the only reason I asked that is because I've had a similar, I, I've just had that similar experience of like two people viewing my game very differently. And like somebody telling me, I mean, somebody told me one time that like, I've seen Brad, you know, raise it up to 600 pre like playing in a five ten home game, like with Jack six off. And I'm like, I can guarantee you that never fucking happened. Like, how did this story even like get told? Right? Like, where does it come from? And they're like convinced that it happened. I'm like, dude, I, <laughs> I can, I promise you, I have it. But like, when you build kind of an image of like gambling and kind of crazy compared to the rest of the people, like they'll just make stuff up to kind of fit that narrative, um, even if it makes no strategic sense. And I'm like almost offended that like why would i do that like what 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 would possess me to do such a thing like that but um so yeah. my fa- my fabrications are always in the opposite direction when i was playing live because i had this i think my image at parks was that i never ever lost and that because i because I, you know i always had the max and i i never I, the way i carry myself you could never tell if i was losing or winning and so and and i was there every day from 9.30 to 5.30. So even if I'm stuck a ton, I probably, I might still have four or 5K in front of me, even though I'm stuck a ton. Yeah. And, you know, the people are coming in later in the day and they're seeing, they're seeing that. And so the fabrications were always like, yeah, Trevor makes $400 an hour. He crushes everybody. And it's like, no, that's not, that's not the case at all. Yeah. Uh, so it's like, but that was, I always enjoyed having that image because it makes it so much easier on yourself, right? If everybody just feels like they're, they're, they're going to lose to you then that's better for you in that sense. Um, you do have to balance the, you want to have fun with everybody too. You know what I mean? So like, that's, that's the way it was. Like people were okay with me winning because they enjoyed my company. Right. I mean, I think that's how poker ought to be anyway. And like, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, if you, anybody's ever walked up on me playing a session and I'm like two hours in with like starting stacks at all my tables, like I am buried like yeah. totally yeah. buried even like when i was 21 years old at a casino uh me and my friend because i was uh, so young and dumb um i had a minor slot machine addiction um and was just like putting the money in the machine and i'll, I'll never forget like hitting a jackpot 
and like still being stuck 2k and it was like a $4,500 jackpot and everybody's like walking by like congratulations way to go that's awesome and I'm like yeah I don't expect to get tipped Mr. Operator <laughs> coming here right, paying right. me out because I'm still buried like I'm so stuck um but yeah people just they see something they make up a narrative that they think makes sense and like my crazy image was great because like I want them to think I'm capable of anything because like when the money goes in I'm pretty much uh nutted up um so like you're you're playing your career you're having your career you're you have your family what led you to the vlog like what was the process of moving towards the content creation side yeah it was it was only because of a challenge that Andrew Nini and Jeff Gross did together for the um, PSPC, the Poker Players Championship. So they had a competition called Vlogger in Paradise. So it was a, a competition where you had to create five different videos, one per week on a different preset topic. And at the end, the winner would get the $30,000 package to the Bahamas. I had always been interested in kind of getting into content in that, in that regard. I've always written a blog. Uh, I've always enjoyed just the poker content space in general. And I'd actually only found Andrew Nimi's videos maybe six six months before that. But I, I thought they were cool. And when I when I played at parks all the time, I would I would go home and write up my hands and talk about the colorful colorful characters in them and so I thought it was fun. And the other thing that I did was I'd always I'd gotten this actually I'll get this to this part in a little bit later on. I'll come back to the play every hand challenge thing as we get to that. But uh, so with the challenge, I wanted to include my family because I wanted to show what it was like to play poker for a living and raise a family and have them, have them part of the, the channel and part of the experience. But also I'm not a live player either. So I, you know, I play online. I don't ever go to the casino pretty much. So I had to kind of figure out a way to make these videos. Uh, and it's funny enough, like of I think there was around 150 people that entered this contest and I was one of the few professional poker players. There was very few professional poker players. So I kind of already stuck out in that regard, but having the kids involved was a lot different as well. So one of the videos that I did early on was I just told the story of my, my first ever poker heater, but I had the kids act out in the video is that at the time, my, so my kids now are 12, 10 and 12, 10 and six. So this was two years ago that we started. Um, and they love being on camera. They love acting. They're very outgoing. So we, we had fun with that. And uh, I ended up making the top five of the contest, the final five, and I didn't win. They actually gave, ended up giving out two of the packages. But I ended up going to the PSPC anyway and just playing in the tournament my own, on my own and continuing the vlog from there. I knew that once I started it, I probably had put off getting into content to begin with because of the obsessive thing, because I knew that once I got into it, I'd have to really put everything into it. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. yeah. I know, I know, you know. Uh, so once it started, I, I thought to myself, I, I need to, I'm not going to just do a, a vlog where I go to the casino and play poker, you know, like Brad and Andrew have theirs that that's what they do. You know, they go and play poker and they're live poker players. I'm not that I play 40 hours a week online. That's my job. I need to do something that's a little bit different from, from everything else. So the two different ideas that I came up with for videos were one, I was going to just write scripts up and have my kids act out as poker players, different things that I come up with from the poker area, like from the news, from things that are going on. 
And the first thing I came up with was it was Marley's channel had come out, out at the same time as mine. And she had the, I'm looking for a poker boyfriend. So I thought it'd be hilarious if my son, who you know was four years old, would be looking for a poker girlfriend. And so we made this whole skit up. I wrote the whole thing up. And I have no experience in writing anything other than like, you know, I write blog posts, but I never wrote a movie or a script or anything like that. So I wrote the script up. We got, you know, uh, my wife, Jody did all the, uh, the props and all that stuff like that. And it was great. And people liked it. They thought it was funny. So we, we kept kind of going with that on different things. But then the other videos that I came up with, uh, I had always, I had read a card player. I want to say a card player. Maybe I don't remember one of the poker magazines, uh, that Dan, uh, Daniel Negreanu wrote this article in 2004, 2005, and he talked about how he would have these party days, he called them. So he would go into his regular 10-20 game once a month and play every single hand. He went and fold preflop. He would just play every single hand. I think I remember that uh, yeah. blog post, actually. And it was, it was just like he was going to, you know, first of all, people would remember that. And then second of all, he would just get into a ton of spots where he had to think his way out of it in order to make some money. So I always did this. I would I would do this, you know, every few weeks online or sometimes I would go to the casino and I'd just play one, two, and I'd say, I'm not allowed to fold preflop. I'm just going to try to make money. I actually, in 2000, 2012, I think it was, I tried to get a prop bet that I could make a certain amount per, per hour, like $15 an hour or something, not being able to fold preflop in a one, two game in Atlantic City. For an extent. But nobody, it was, it wouldn't end up working out. I needed to get enough money down that I could do it, you know what I mean, to make it work. But so I said, I'm going to do this for the channel. I'm going to, I'm going to fill myself, go into the casino. I'm just going to play one, two, and I'm not going to be able to fold preflop and, and make content out of this. I think uh, that sounds like a pretty solid bet, to be honest with you. That seems really hard to play every hand at one, two and make more than $15 an hour when like yeah. legitimately beating the game is probably like 25 bucks an hour, right? Yeah. It's crazy. Uh, so, it says a lot about what folks thought of you that nobody gave you any action on that bet. That's kind of crazy yeah. to me. Yeah. Uh, I, th- I think it's probably more a liquidity problem for, for the people that I was trying to get, get action from. I, I, don't, I didn't have a, a big network of people who were willing to bet against me, at least, usually. Yeah. And it's going to take a while, too. So the money's locked up for a long period exactly. of time. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so I started this. I started actually doing it on Twitch, playing online, just that uh, 25 cent, 50 cent. And I did it every day, but I could only do it for, you know, an hour a day. So there's no way I could build a big base through that. It was very fun. I think it was, honestly, the people who were watching every day got way better at poker because of it, because I'm in all these spots and I'm telling them exactly why I'm like, why I'm doing this. And I'm playing 25 cent, 50 cent, which a lot of people are, that's what they're playing. So they're, like, they're seeing like how I'm working my way out of these situations and, and whatnot. But eventually I, I moved it over to going to the casino and doing it. And that's where we're kind of at now. So I had, I had done it uh, eight times previously uh, before the coronavirus thing all happened. And when I had done it, I just kind of made normal videos out of them. I, you know, I would go to the casino. I would film, film my hands. But uh, when a big hand came up, that's what I would put in the, the, vi- in the, in the vlog. So, I, you know, it would be a normal poker vlog where there's, say, 10 hands from the session. You know, all the biggest pots that happen. Well, right before the pandemic i i had an idea that you know what, i'm just going to film every single hand that i play and then i'm going to show that i'm going to i'll make it quick i'll do voiceovers on it and i'll show every single hand so the last video before we went into quarantine i went down to the golden nugget in atlantic city 
I played for two hours because again, so I'm short on time, you know, I got all these other commitments. So my, my sessions need to be quick. I don't like live poker, so I need to be able to play every hand anyway. So this is all just like works out for this. I mean, and, and I need to get content. So I played for two hours. I got dealt 93 hands. I filmed every single one of them and I made it into a 30 minute video and people loved it. And it, it, it uh, you know, it got some, it got like 32,000 views, which is a lot more for my channel, about 10,000 subscribers on my channel. And, uh, I said, okay, I got, I have this here. This is what I'm going to do. I'll put one of these out per week and, you know, do the, the voiceovers on it and it's entertaining. Well, obviously then we had no live poker for a while, but now we're back today. Today actually was the first video back. Uh, when we were just out in Vegas. I went to the Flamingo, played a session. There's 64 poker hands that went up today. And now I have uh, set up for every Thursday. I'll have a new play every hand video out. Uh, and if you're wondering about results, so we have 10 sessions so far done in this, and oh, I have my results here. I'm up almost $1,600. <laughs> and how, how many hours? Uh, so each session is about two hours. Okay, so, so 20 hours. 20 hours, and I'm up, let's see, I was up 1219, and then I won 465 yesterday. So yeah, so 16, almost $1,700 in about 20 hours. It, you know, this is kind of, amazing this is like a kind of an amazing challenge I'm, I'm just thinking about it have you seen the documentary so there's a rock climbing documentary free solo and alex honnold is trying to scale el capitan in yosemite um with no assistance right just free climb uh free climb a specific route on el capitan it had never been done by anybody ever it's like something that uh, only a lunatic would undertake and he was talking about why he does it and he said something that stuck out to me that i relate to this and that it was he said he does not have a death wish he said that like the training that goes into him being able to pull this off is ultra intense and while he's up there it's the one time in his life that like you have to be on top of everything one mistake means game over with your entire life and he said that that feeling of like his senses being heightened his adrenaline everything just being in that moment 100 percent is like a feeling that he just lives for and that he loves and i i see the same parallel when you're playing every hand everything is important every detail on how you choose to navigate these spots is ultra ultra important so like to me, I've never done it, but it feels like your senses are just going to be heightened in the same way. Is that is that the case? That's absolutely true. I, I want to also point out, though, uh, the one caveat that I put into the challenge is that I am allowed to fold preflop if there is a three bet or an all in before it gets to me. Sure. So, so I made that just because, if if not, I, I mean, honestly, in the twenty hours that I've played, there's been like two three bets before it got to me. So it's one two, you know, whatever. Uh, but yes, like what you just said there, it's interesting that you say it like that because that's how I viewed every single hand I've played in my poker career. And that's honestly why I think I've been able to be successful because every hand I viewed as a life or death thing, you know, I, um, that's my, there's no just like throwing away money or no just throwing away a decision. Every decision is incredibly important to me because I have these responsibilities, you know, it comes back to that. And then at some point, obviously it becomes, this is just who I am. That's how, that's how I approach these things yeah um, I, i'm the same like every data point matters like when you fold and you get to see 
how somebody plays a river and then you get to see how they constructed their turn range and their river range and the bet sizing that they use like everything is worthy of your attention even if you folded pre because these little data points and these lessons that you learn about how they're constructing their ranges it will affect you like it will um influence your future decisions against these specific players so like pay close attention always this is uh one of the strengths of my game i've never been uh an exceptionally high volume player always low volume and high intensity so like you know in my heyday six tables uh two hours at a stretch and then take a break and then do it again but like you know everything matters like every little piece of the puzzle um is going to influence your win rate it's going to influence your decisions so don't be watching youtube while you're, you know, playing your six max poker table, don't be watching YouTube while you're playing live poker for the love of God, like pay attention to your opponents and figure out, you know, the best way to take advantage of their tendencies. Yeah. See, I've always been high intensity and high volume. Yeah. So that's, a, that's a blessing. That's a blessing. <laughs> yeah. It's just like a, it's, it's combination of the obsessiveness and, and strong focus abilities. I can focus for really long periods of time. And then, you know, again, just the, the push from the family and, and knowing that they, they're relying on me and that they have my back for everything. And, you know, that I have that there to come back to, uh, there was something else I was going to say, I forgot. Maybe it'll come to you. It It might, might come to you down the road. Um, is there anything else that you would like to talk about it regarding your YouTube vlog, um, before we jump into the lightning round here? No, that was, so the vlog pretty much the play every hand thing is, is the way that we're going to go from here, I think. Occasionally we'll have some kids videos every once in a while, but I think they're they're partially kind of growing past it. Partially, I'm never going to force them to do anything at all. And also it's just so much work. The the kid videos for six minutes of a video is 60 hours of work, something like that. Yeah. So pets and kids, that's what they say in Hollywood. Don't work with pets or kids. That's right. (laughs) It's not even the kids that are the problem. It's more just the the writing of the script and then the the editing process is, is really time uh time consuming and you know the the youtube channel is awesome i love it um the the other projects that i have going on jody and i have a podcast together that we focus on mental health i want to say we focus on mental health but we actually just focus on life so we talk about life and the different why mental health why did you choose mental health yeah so uh right around the time that i went to online poker in new jersey was 2013 i had a really bad panic attack uh, and then I had recurring panic attacks over and over again. I dealt with anxiety really badly. Had you ever had a panic attack before then? I think I did, but I didn't realize that it was a panic attack. I had I had them my, my whole life, but I didn't. It never got as bad as it did, did that night where I ended up in the hospital, and they, you know, I thought I was having a heart attack. I thought I was dying. Uh, so the last seven years, I've devoted to putting almost as much attention to mental health and figuring out my brain as I have to, to poker over the, that whole time period. And what I found was the things that helped me were meditation and, and other things like that, that you hear very commonly, but I wanted to make sure that I was able to share all those things with other people and help them as much as possible. And it came to a point where Jody and I had both wanted to start a podcast. She's in nutrition now. Uh, so she's a nutrition expert. She's got the that side of the health covered. And I, like I said, I, I consider myself an expert in mental health topics just from the amount of work that I put in over the last seven years. So we had wanted to start a podcast and then 
uh, a friend of ours committed suicide last year. Uh, he's dealing with schizophrenia. And it was kind of like the final push that we needed to like, okay, we're just going to start this. And at first we started it as this is a mental health podcast. Then we realized over time, and this is with a lot with DGAF's help, that the world's not necessarily ready for mental health type stuff in that way. So our thought, like my thought is, it's just life. Like when, when you listen to our podcast, we're just talking about life and there's tons of funny moments and it's, it's, it's a funny lighthearted podcast where we come back to life topics constantly. Jody's in therapy and she's talking about her therapy experiences. We're talking about our, our kids' therapy experiences and the things that they're going through. And I can share everything that I've been through as well. Uh, and it helps us. We've established kind of a community around, of people around it. And it's, it's helped us help a lot of people and people have helped us as well. So it's a pretty big uh, passion project that we have. Um, we are in our second season now. So we're 63 episodes in total. Um, and we love it. it comes out every Wednesday morning at 5 a.m. Eastern. And what did you learn? What have you learned about your your own mind going through this journey, like the behind the panic attacks, um, why they were occurring, like mm -hmm. all the things? Yeah. So my my panic and it's interesting, actually, that what it is, is it came around death. And I just listened to to your interview with DGAF and the things that you guys were talking about. And I, honestly, I, I didn't want to hit play on it because I knew I, that I would be, my anxiety would ramp up as soon as I started listening to it because anything to do with death and dying or the afterlife and stuff like that, that gets to me. But what I've learned about myself is that if I can think about things in a certain way, I can recognize my thoughts for what they are and see them for what they are or feelings in my body. And th this is what meditation has helped me the most with is that, you know, when I was going through all the panic attacks, I would get a thought in my head or a feeling in my body. And then it would just destroy me. It would take over everything. And I would try to keep pushing away and pushing away. And it wasn't until I realized that I just have to let it be there and just give it the space and the room. And you, you learn that through meditation that I was able to kind of get past that. I still obviously don't like the thought of dying. I love my life so much and I love my kids and I, I just can't imagine the thought of there not being anything after this to go to. I, I loved what you talked about with the awareness of, of, you know, you're just an awareness and how maybe that awareness passes through and, and that just moves on. Uh, that, that kind of made me really happy to hear. Um, but I was so happy that I listened to your interview there because it, it opened my mind up to a bunch of different things with regard to that stuff. But the, the main point coming back to is, is that everything is really just awareness. And if I, I know that I'm the happiest when I'm aware, when I, when I'm paying attention to what's going around me, I know that I'm happiest in poker when I'm locked in and I'm paying attention and I'm focused on, I'm happiest as a father when I'm paying attention to what my kids are doing. And if listening to their laugh and hearing their laugh, and I know that I'm the best husband when I'm listening to my wife and I'm not just tuning her out. Right. Like that's it all comes back to that. So if I can help people with getting to that point, uh, then then I feel good. Also, you know, you, anytime you help somebody, you, you feel good. So over the last six months, that's kind of been a really big focus of mine with what's been going on, because I know there's so many people right now going through it that are, you know, with the, the changes in society and with the pandemic and things like that. So I've been reaching out to people and having one-on-one -on -one conversations with them. And I try to 
frame it as this, this isn't therapy. I'm not a therapist. We're just having a chat. Like just, you can chat with me anytime you want. And like that for anybody that listens to this, that, that invitation is always open. Like my Instagram DMS are open hundred percent of the time and I'll make time for you. If you want to chat, it's my thing. Man. Uh, it gives me anxiety thinking about you listening to the, that podcast with DGAF because it's so like, I'm just trying to make sense of reality in the world. And it like, it, it's a hard thing to make sense of. And it's apparent to me. The one thing that's apparent to me is we don't have all the information. We're missing data points. I know that much for sure. There are data points we are missing and I don't know what they are. And that's like what leads me to think about, you know, what we are and what is this thing that is life and like, you know, even what are our emotions? What are our feelings? Like what is like I've learned recently that like your emotion, you, you can manifest emotions, which is not a thing that I've ever really thought about, but like if your anxiety is like a feeling, I feel it in my chest. Um, and if I think about anxiety, I can manifest that emotion. And then I, I started thinking like, I wonder if I can do like joy, right? And by the way, I, I was under uh, perception altering substance at the time. And I just thought like, I wonder, can I manifest joy? And I started thinking about my wife and like our courtship in those early days her picking me up at the airport and like just... It makes me feel joyful now just thinking about it. Like, wow, the most beautiful woman in the world is like picking me up from the airport and like smiling and running at me and hugging me. And like, that's just a very joyful thing. And I, I've learned that like, you know, we react to our emotions a lot of the time and we don't, we aren't even aware that our emotions are influencing us when they are. And like, just, you know, investigating those, reflecting on what are these things? What do they mean? Like, are they helpful? Are they causing me harm? Um, that's been just really helpful for me. And it's just, uh, yeah, that was a very, uh, it was an impulsive thing that I did reaching out to DGAF after listening to his podcast. And I was like, hey, this is kind of perfect. It's kind of cosmic that you're talking about this. And it's something I'm thinking about a lot. I reached out and then like, as soon as I did it and we booked the date, I was like, Oh shit! I've got to talk <laughs> about this. Like I, I'm, I can't back out now. Like yeah. I, I've done it. Um, so I'm glad. I, you know, the the conclusions that I've come to so far have given me just a sense of peace in the world. And like, we're intuitive people, right? Like we're intuitive. We have a high emotional IQ, and this is something that I think is very valuable in a poker sense. But like, you know, I'm prone to I'm prone to depression. I have been prone to depression my whole life. I'll get it's like a train. I think of it like a train. And like when I'm going full blast and firing on all cylinders, I'm okay. And then if it ever stops, it's really hard to get going again. Um, I get in a dark place where I think about the suffering in the world. And it sometimes it's almost tangible. Imagining like folks in North Vietnam who are in concentration camps and like uh, women in, you know, Bangladesh are walking seven miles to work and they're walking they're working 120 hours a week in these horrible conditions to create garments at the cheapest possible price that we buy. And like, we're contributing to this. And then like, you know, the slaughterhouses and the farms and the animals and like, it can get overwhelming thinking yeah. about just all these degrees of suffering that exist. And so, you know, again, it's sort of just trying to make sense of like, why is this happening? Like, you know, is there anything I can do? And you, I sometimes I, I just feel so small and the problem seems so big and unmovable and I can't do anything. And yeah, that's uh 
you know, it's a cross that I bear sometimes and just trying to, like I said, asking questions and trying to navigate my way through it. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. One, one thing you said, a couple of things you said, one, the experiencing of emotions and really feeling them. That's another thing that's really come from this mental health journey I've been on is just understanding that you have all these emotions and, and letting yourself go through them and just recognizing that, that that's how you feel. And I think that's really important in poker too. I'm going to have two things that are going to cross over that to understand at times, many times in poker, you're going to feel frustrated. You're going to be angry. And for me, I know that when I feel that way, I have to reset, you know, I have to, and I, and I also have to make sure I leave that in the office because I'm not taking that out there to my family. I'm separating those two things. Um, and then the other thing that I've really taken over the last year for sure is, and this is, again, comes, we're just going to keep saying DJF's name, but it comes from him is just recognizing that everything cycles. And that's so true in poker and in, in your emotions and your mental health, everything in poker is going to cycle everything in your, in everybody, you know, everybody has a cycle and sometimes you're going to be at the top of the cycle. Sometimes you're going to be at the bottom of it. The idea is to try to get them a little bit closer if you can. Um, and that's really what I work on with other people is let's recognize that we're at different points in our cycle. What's going on in your life right now and how can we get you to a higher point for now, but you're going to go back down at some point, just recognize that you're there and just recognizing that you're feeling that way. And we, and we move on to, you know, what can we do to better ourselves in that time period? And when you are feeling down, have compassion for yourself. Yeah. Tell yourself that you're still loved. You're still worthy. You, you know, you still have a purpose in this world. And it's really sad to me that folks are so harsh on themselves when they feel like they fall short, when they wouldn't be harsh to another human who's suffering in a moment, you know, they wouldn't just try to crush them and batter them to do better. They would have compassion. And like, you know, if you're feeling bad, if you're having an off day, uh, I have a team that I um, am coaching uh, on volume in the mental game in my Slack community. And like, that's just yesterday. It was like, I was talking to this guy and he's like, some days I just feel so angry that like I could chunk my cat out the window. Like that was how he described it. Like he loves his cat and like just the feel how it feels rubbing against him is like so abrasive that he's like, Oh, I just want to chunk it out the window. And I'm like, yeah. And like, that's okay. Like just in those moments, know that like you love yourself because he does, because he, he said he hates that about himself, right? He hates that. I hate that. I feel that. And I'm like, just love yourself and realize that everything is cyclical. Everything is transient. Everything is temporary. The mood will end and you will start feeling better. But in the meantime, just know that you're a worthy human being and that you are deserving of love even when you're feeling low. And another thing that I want to uh, touch on is just poker players in general. Like, I love Nick Howard and all the mindset and mental game work that he does. It's one of my, the joys of my professional career is making videos with him. And I realized something, you know, he's, he's about, uh, feeling the negative, right? Like understanding, feeling it, having compassion for yourself and understanding that like you can't circumvent this. You can't go around it. The only way out is through these emotions and allowing yourself to feel them. And I just want to add something that you're going to feel joy at the poker table. You're going to feel happiness. Allow yourself to feel that too. Feel good when you win a big pot. Allow yourself to experience the good emotions. You know, it's not about eliminating the bad emotions and, um, you know, 
trying to minimize them as much as possible. But like, I just found that whenever I let that joy in and I realized that like, man, I made an awesome check raise there. Man, I chose a great sizing. Wow, that was a great fold. Like whenever I build myself up like that and then I do something that's subpar, it's so much easier to shake off when I'm like, yeah, I, I've given myself 40 positive affirmations. So I'm 40 and one on the day. Yeah, whatever. Like if you expect me to be perfect, then whatever. But like that one feels so much, uh, if it just doesn't do as much damage as if I'm looking at it like I'm 0 and 1, right? So just for the poker players out there, allow yourself to feel joy. Like, yeah, guess what? It feels fucking good getting it in with kings against aces and spiking a king on the flop. Like feel good about that, you know? Um, yeah. let that the end goal is not to be the end goal is not to be a robot, you know, and that that yeah. carries over to life too. You you want to experience the joys, and you know it, there's going to be some pain involved. But when you're experiencing highs and and great things going on, soak it in, enjoy it. Like the one thing for me is with my wife and kids, you know, I'm never going to take that time with them for granted. You know, no matter what it is, I'm going to look for the beauty that I can find in it even if it's some really tough times for us, you know, there's, there's been hard times, you know, having a family is not easy. Raising kids is not easy. You have so many times where you're just like, I just want to give up on this. I just want, I'm, I'm so tired. I just can't deal with this anymore. There's, there's still some, some beauty in that, in that struggle and in that pain because you're trying everything you can for the people that you care about. But then, you know, when there's highs and, and there's great things and like seeing your kids play sports and stuff like that, it's just the coolest thing in the world. And, really soaking that in and enjoying it. You know, I think a lot of people can, can take it for granted because it's just part of life. It's, you know, you have to worry about taking your kid here and you, you get stuck into these responsibilities, but you can reframe any situation to however you want to. You're not stuck in some way to think about things. You can think about it differently. Yeah. You can, you can think about taking your kid to an athletic event or to practice as a hassle that disrupts your day, or you can think about it as a way that you're serving your child and giving them an experience that they're going to cherish for a lifetime. And whichever framing you choose is going to make an impact on your the amount of joy or suffering that you get out of the experience. And like, if you have the choice, I mean, frame for joy. Like, if you have the choice, just frame for joy. And like, there's going to be bad times. You know, there's going to be dark seasons of our lives, and you know, the darkness allows us to appreciate the light. And, you know, it's just life is a lot about lenses and perspectives. And yeah, it's, uh, I'm glad that I get to experience. I'm grateful, you know, my, my daughters are in the other room right now. And like, I'm grateful that when we end this interview, I'm going to get to spend some time with them. And yeah, I think that's, uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's life, man. Yep. Agreed. So we've gone over and we missed the lightning round, by the way. So what I'm going to do here is invite you back okay. for a round two. And we'll go through sort of my, you know, the, the more scripted questions that I have that I routinely ask, ask my guests. But like, man, it's been great having you on the show. It's been an amazing experience getting to know you more. And um, I guess the final question that we'll end on is if, if the listener wants to learn more, about you, about your wife, about your family, where can they go? Uh, they can go to raisingthenuts.com. That's the website that pretty much has everything there. If you go to youtube.com slash raisingthenuts, that is the YouTube channel. 
That's where you'll find the Flavor Hand Challenge. And then if you search for Raising the Nuts on any podcast platform, that's where you find the podcast. And that comes out, like I said, every Wednesday morning at 5 a.m. Uh, I think that's about it. Uh, uh, Instagram and Twitter, I am Trey Momey, T-R-E-M-O-M-E-Y. So like I said, my Instagram DMs are open 100% of the time. You can send me any questions, any thoughts. Just want to chat, hit me up there. Awesome, man. And for the listener, you can click through on the show page. All these links will be available for you there. Thank you for your time and your energy, man. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you have yet to subscribe to the show, please take a second to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. For more content from me, Coach Brad, please visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash enhance your edge, and I'll see you next time.